You know, friends, we are uh, living uh, in a unique time in human history. You and I, we get to we get to see certain things up close and personal in ways that uh, others who came before us never could, at least not in the same ways and not, not to the same degree that we can. You and I, we have at our fingertips so much technology, so much information. We have innumerable uh, news feeds and news sources that barely existed a generation ago. And because we have these things, you and I, we get, a, we get an up-close and personal view of human nature itself human nature on full display in high definition, scrolling across our screens at a remarkable rate, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And as a result, you and I, we get to see up close and personal each and every day, stories coming at us at a a relentless pace that show us the reality of, of the human condition in which we live. We see story after story of human beings trying to uh, find their way, searching and seeking and uh, striving for all different sorts of things in all different sorts of ways. We see story after story of human tension and human conflict in every area of life. We see interpersonal conflict, social conflict, racial conflict, political conflict. We see real and raw stories of human struggle, of human strife of human suffering. We see stories of injustice and oppression, stories of violence and hatred, stories of hunger and homelessness and hopelessness. The stream of stories never seems to cease, does it, with story after story coming at us and reminding us of of the plight of the human condition and in many ways of the dark and desperate state of the human heart. And to be honest, it's hard not to get discouraged or overwhelmed or angry at times at the way things are, at the way way people are, at the way we are. And so what is it about the human heart and the human condition that people would be these ways and, and do these things? And why do the problems of this world and the problems of the human heart seem so entrenched and so intractable, so resistant to to human solutions. The problems of the human condition are quite certainly intractable. History has uh, proven that point if you're paying any attention at all. If there's one thing that history has shown us, it's that there are, stri- uh, no, there are no strictly human solutions to the problems that plague us as a race, as the human race. We can't seem to educate ourselves out of our problems. We can't spend our way out We can't will our way out. We can't legislate our way out of them either. It doesn't work. History has shown us that time and time again. The human race has made incredible advances. We've made remarkable achievements and accomplishments in every possible area of human pursuit, right? In science, in medicine, in engineering, in psychology, in sociology, in technology. And yet, in spite of all of these, in spite of all of these advances in virtually every area of our lives, the condition of the human heart does not seem to be advancing at all. And so why is that? Paul is going to remind us why that is in this passage today in a, in a fascinating way, I think. 
This passage is going to show us a contrast. It's a before and after story of you and I and every, every other Christian. And the contrast Paul presents here couldn't, uh, couldn't be more stark. And it has some very uh, important things to teach us, I hope. Paul is going to begin on a very uh, negative note. He's going to begin by kind of exploring the depths of uh, pessimism about you and I and about all of uh, humanity. He's going to remind us why things are the way they are. But then he's going to begin turning a corner and kind of uh, rising to the heights of optimism about our God and uh, about his free gift of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this combination that we're going to see here of both pessimism about our own condition and optimism about our God should remind us today too, I hope, of, of the very refreshing honesty and uh, realism of the Bible and what it has to say to us. There are three, pe- uh, three points we'll be drawing out of this passage, uh, uh, this before and after picture by the Apostle Paul. First, what we were by nature, what we have become by grace, and what we are becoming for his glory. First, what we were by nature, the first three verses. And as he begins, Paul kind of lays it out there he, in, in very stark and even, uh, even startling terms. In the first three verses of this passage, Paul gives us a very concise summary of the Christian doctrine of sin. He's going to lay out the bad news for us so that we might marvel all the more at the good news The biblical doctrine of sin is misunderstood by many. It's quite unpopular and even offensive to many too. And that makes sense when you consider what it it says about people, the the way that it confronts them, the way that it tells people they're not basically good, they're basically bad and and broken and flawed. That's outrageous to many. People outside the church don't want to hear it. Many would say that such ideas are primitive at best and and dangerous at worst. But interestingly enough, many people even within the church don't want to hear it either. Many churches have minimized or dismissed the doctrine of sin altogether. Their market research has told them that people don't want to hear about what is wrong with them, and so if a church is uh, really going to target the market, they have to get rid of some of, these, some of these old and outdated ideas. And so some churches have kind of airbrushed out the doctrine of sin, it's not in the language, it's not in the sermons or the teachings or the communications. You hear lots of words like love and mercy, like recovery and hurt, but you don't, you don't hear them talking about sin. The Apostle Paul, he, he talks a lot about sin. The Bible talks a lot about sin too, and so we're going to talk a lot about sin as well. Paul says we need to understand it, we need to see this clearly. Because if we don't have a good handle on the doctrine of sin, we will never understand ourselves and we will never understand the world around us. We will never be able to make sense of our lives. And one of the things Paul teaches us here in this passage and elsewhere too is something about about the origin of sin. Where does our sin come from according to the Bible? The answer is you you were born with it. You were born into sin. It's a part of your nature. In verse three, Paul says that you and I, we were were carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. Now, some translations say that we were carrying out the desires of our mind and body. 
Still others, uh, other translations say we were carrying out the inclinations of our, of our sinful nature. And just to make sure we don't misunderstand what he's saying, in the same verse, verse three, Paul says that you and I, like the rest of them, he says, were by our nature, by our very nature, objects of God's anger and wrath, by our very nature, we were deserving of his judgment and his condemnation. These are very strong statements. And here's what Paul is saying. You were, you were born with a, a sinful nature. You were born into it. That's what the word flesh in your Bible is referring to, really, the sinful nature that we were born with. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 tells us that sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and spread to all people. From that point forward, we were born into sin. And this means that for some of us, we need to expand our thinking about sin because what this is saying is that sin is not just the things you do, though it includes the things you do. And it's not only the things that you think, though did you know that sin includes even the things that you think? But it's even more than that. Fundamentally, it's who you are too. It's, it's what you are. It's your very nature. And what this means is that we are not sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we're sinners. Jesus in Mark chapter seven, verse 15 says that nothing that, uh, nothing that goes into a person from the outside, <clears throat> excuse me, can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him, Jesus says. And so out of the heart, he says, come, come all sorts of evil and wickedness, Jesus is telling us that the things that we do, the sins that we, that we commit are nothing more than outward expressions. They are eruptions, really, of a nature that we already have within us. In fact, the Bible teaches here and elsewhere that sin, before it is an action or a thought or a behavior, it's a disposition, a power even, one that we will struggle uh, to control and to contain in this life. And so sin is not merely wrong thoughts or wrong actions, it's very much an inner disposition that inclines us towards those wrong thoughts and towards uh, those wrong actions. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we, were, we are sinners. We were born into this condition. It is part of our nature. And this also means, of course, that you don't really have to learn how to sin. Nobody has to teach you. Nobody has to sit you down and say, here's how you do it. You do it, you do it quite naturally. It's your it's your very nature. It comes out of your heart. And so you need to see, as a Christian, as a Christian, you need to see that you're not guilty only of the things you do. You're guilty of who you are and what you are. By our very natures, we were objects of God's wrath, deserving of his judgment. We were born with a radical disease in need of a radical solution, and God has given us one. And and we're gonna see that in just a couple of minutes. Now, another thing we learn here is that we were not only born into sin, we were also deceived and dominated by sin and by Satan too. Verse two talks about how we once lived according to the ways of the world and according to the, the ruler of the power of the air. That's the devil. Paul is referring to Satan there. And so we see that we were not only born into sin, we're deceived by sin and we're deceived by the, by the enemy behind the sin who seeks to uh, energize that sin by getting us to follow the, 
the ways of the world, getting us to believe what the world and our culture say to us about ourselves and about our God. And one of the ways that sin and Satan deceive us, one of the ways of the world, one of the ways of the devil is to have us always uh, pointing fingers and placing blame, having us believe that the problem, the problem in our lives, the, the problems of this world, the problem with everything is always, it's always out there. It's always, it's always them. One of the reasons things are the way they are, one of the main reasons why tension and conflict and, and strife run so rampant all around us is that just about every cause, every initiative, every philosophy, every political ideology basically looks around at the world and says the problem is over there. The problem is them. The problem is the Democrats. The problem is the Republicans. The problem is the rich. The problem is the lazy. The problem is the unions. The problem is the corporations. The problem is the white people or the black people or the brown people. The problem is them. The problem is out there. But the Bible says we will never get over our problems until we realize that our biggest problems uh, are not out there. Our biggest problems are in here. Russian historian by the name of uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, who himself was not a Christian man, he had some interesting say, uh, things to say about this uh, dynamic that's going on within each one of us. Listen to what he said. He said, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were only necessary to separate them from the rest of us. But the dividing line between good and evil, he says, is not out there. No, the dividing line between good and evil cuts right down the middle of every human heart, he says. And the biblical doctrine of sin would say that very same thing, but it, it would also go a, a step further and tell us that most human beings also naturally live in a state of uh, denial and deception about this, about the depths of their own depravity. Sin and Satan deceive us into uh, into thinking we're not sinners at all, and so if we're not sinners, why in the world would we need a savior? Augustine, in the fourth century AD, in his famous book, Confessions, he said this, he said, my sin was all the more incurable because I did not think myself a sinner. And so are you able to look at yourself and, and admit the worst, to acknowledge uh, the darkness within you, to admit that you're helpless against it apart from Jesus. The gospel is not for those who think they're good, it's for those who can see that they're not good, that there's something wrong deep inside of them. But you need to see it, you need to see it first because you can never, you can never be rescued if you, don't, if you don't realize you're in danger. Paul also gives us a sense here that sin not only deceives us, sin dominates us too. Paul gives us a glimpse of how sin operates here in verse three when he says that we were living in our fleshly desires and our fleshly inclinations. Now that word flesh there, sarx is the Greek word. That word uh, flesh is not referring to your physical bodies or your physical desires even. It's referring to this uh, sin nature that we've been talking about, that we've been uh, born into. And get this, the word desires, fleshly desires, can also be translated as, as cravings, as longings. And the word inclinations there can also be translated as, as commands. 
And so very interestingly, this sin nature we were born with that we all have within us, Paul describes it as, as having its own desires, its own cravings, and making, making certain demands of us. Do you know anything at all about that? And though the flesh does command us to follow bad desires and lead us into bondage in that sort of way, it can also take us into bondage by uh, commanding us to take a good desire and to, and to make it more important than it should be. And so in the same way, you can have bad desires commanding you, taking you captive in your life, that your, uh, your good desires can kind of take you by the throat too. That's, that's what the flesh does. You make your career the most important thing to you and you'll always need to climb higher, make money the most important thing and you will never have enough. Make your body and physical attractiveness the most important things and eventually you'll end up feeling ugly because there will always be somebody who looks better than you. The cravings and commands of the flesh can take either bad desires or good desires and turn them into bondage and into blindness. Finally, Paul says here that we were not only born into sin, deceived and dominated by sin, we were also, he says, dead in it. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, he says in verse one. Sin does lead to physical death. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter six, verse 23. The, the wages of sin is death, he says there. But, but here, Paul here Paul is talking more about uh, spiritual death. Apart from Christ, every one of us was a spiritual corpse, like the walking dead, alive in one sense, completely dead in another, dead in the most important sense, dead to God. Paul is not saying that we were merely sick and just needed to get better and do better. He says we were dead. And when you're dead, you can't really do anything about it. To be spiritually dead is to be completely unaffected and unresponsive to uh, to stimuli, to spiritual stimuli, to the things of God. Romans chapter three, verse 11, Paul says, there is no one who understands, there is no one, no one who seeks God on his own. In 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, Paul says, the natural man does not receive the things of God because it is foolishness to him. He is not able, he is not able to understand it. So every one of us, before being quickened by God and brought alive by God, was utterly lifeless and insensitive to our Creator, dead in our trespasses and our sin. And so there you go. That's the before picture, born into sin, broken by nature, deserving of judgment, deceived and dominated by sin and dead in it. It's a bleak picture and it sounds like a hopeless Situation, it is a hopeless situation, but verse four, in verse four, Paul says, but, he says, but God. And it is here that we move from what we were by nature to what we have become by grace. We saw the bad news. Let's talk about the good news now. Take in these words with me. What we have become by grace, verses four to nine. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. And so, how is that for a a pretty cataclysmic shift what seemed to be the darkest and most desperate situation imaginable for each one of us and for everyone on this planet apart from uh, Jesus is now beaming and bursting with hope because of Jesus. This is God's offer to us in spite of us, God's free gift of salvation by grace. Now salvation is not a term that really Uh, registers with most people anymore. It doesn't really mean much to people today. In fact, if anything, I think it has uh, some negative connotations now. If the average person hears you talking about being saved or about uh, Christian salvation, they may think it sounds pretty narrow and pretty shallow, but salvation in the Bible is a rich, rich word. It's a rich and beautiful concept. Salvation involves first and foremost rescue, rescue from danger, rescue from harm, rescue uh, from destruction. And as we just explored, there is much, there's much that we needed rescue from. But salvation, according to the Bible, involves much more than rescue too. It involves restoration. It involves being made whole. It involves victory. It involves reestablishing all things to how they were supposed to be in the first place, to how we were supposed to be in the first place before sin took root in the human heart. And salvation, according to the Bible, it's dynamic, it's all-encompassing. There are past, present, and future aspects to it that we can actually see here in this very passage. We saw already that what we were saved from, right, deception, domination, bondage, death. Now we're going to see what we're saved for and what we're saved to. And three things I wanna dial in on for a moment here, three actions, three, three verbs, three incredible things Paul tells us that God has done for us in the gospel. In verse five, he, he made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our sin. He made us alive with, with Christ. God's grace in the gospel brings you alive to spiritual reality. We just talked about it, right? When you're spiritually dead, you're unreceptive, you're unresponsive to the things of God. You were uh, dead to spiritual truth, unable to sense them and unable to see them. A dead person cannot bring himself alive to spiritual truth, but God's, uh, Paul says God can and God does. This means there came a point when God awakened you, when he quickened you, when he opened the eyes of your heart so you could begin to see the truth about Jesus. You may have heard about Jesus, you may have known some things about him, but there came a point where God awakened your faith, where the truth about Jesus became real in your heart and where you passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, and Paul says that wasn't your own doing, it was, it was God's doing, it was God's gift. God brought you alive with Christ. But not only that, 
He not only brought you from death to life, he also took you from being in a state of uh, deception and domination by sin and, and by Satan, and he put you in a position of, of authority and, and of honor. In verse six, Paul says that God raised us up with Christ, and he seated us, seated us in the heavens with Christ. And so what does that mean? We know that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was, he was and is uh, seated at the right hand of God the Father in the, in the heavenly realm. The Bible tells us that uh, in many places. Paul told us that, in fact, in chapter one, just a couple weeks back, in Ephesians chapter one, uh, verse 20, Paul told us that God exercised his power by raising Jesus from the dead and by seating him at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. Now, this idea of being seated at the right hand, people in that day and in that time, they would have understood this metaphor perfectly. They would have understood this metaphor straight away. You see, if you were a conquering hero, if you were a victorious uh, leader on the battlefield and you had achieved glory for your people, then uh, when you came back home, when you came back home to the uh, capital city, you were given the place of highest honor possible, which was at the right hand of the throne. You were invited to be seated at the right hand of the throne because of what you had done and because of the victory that you, that you had achieved. To be seated with the king, next to the king, was the place of highest honor, a place of celebration, a place of recognition, a place of authority, really. And so it would have made perfect sense to people back then when they would hear that Jesus, because of all he had accomplished was raised and seated at the right hand of God the Father. They would have understood that this was the highest, uh, the place of highest honor, the most honorable and celebrated seat, in fact, in the entire universe to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And do you know what Paul says here? He says that you and I, he says that you and I, we're there too, raised and seated with him. Paul doesn't say we will be raised. He doesn't say we will be seated. No, Paul has the audacity to put this in the past tense. We have been raised. We have been seated. We are seated there right now, he says. And so what does that mean? One thing it means is that the love and acceptance of God in the gospel is so great. It's uh, so profound. It's so pervasive that it's possible to talk about you and I in a in a positional sense, and even in a relational sense, of already being seated in his presence, in this place of, of highest honor. You're already seated, Paul says. The Father already sees you as seated with him. Paul is not saying you're actually there, of course. He's saying you're legally there. You're, you're relationally there. This, mean God, this means that God already sees you as acceptable. He he sees you not only as, as acceptable, but as one to be honored and as one to be celebrated. He regards you, he regards you that way. He sees you as worthy of honor and celebration in the way that he sees Jesus as worthy of honor and celebration. And so how can that be? It's, it can be because Jesus took on what you and I deserved at the cross so that he could give us all that, all that he deserves and he deserves to be seated at the right hand of the Father in the place of highest 
honor and authority in the universe. And Paul says you and I are seated there too with him. Incredible stuff, life-changing, heart-melting truths here from the Apostle Paul. And I hope you'll pause today and take this in to meditate on it, to rejoice in it. It was hard for me to even look back over this passage yesterday as I was getting ready for today without, without welling up a bit and, and rejoicing and giving thanks for these three amazing realities. We were brought alive by God with Christ even though we were spiritually dead and deserving of destruction. We've been raised up with Christ even though we were pinned down and dominated by sin and by Satan and death. We've been seated with Christ in a position of honor and, and celebration. And we must never lose sight of why God did these things. What were God's motives in doing these things for us anyways? We see Paul talking about God's mercy and his love in verse four. His grace in verse, verses five, seven, and eight his kindness in verse seven. In fact, it says in verse seven that he did all these things so that, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God did all of these things to show us his grace that we might sing about it and celebrate it for the rest of eternity. All right, shifting gears just a little bit, I wanna take a moment to look at verses eight and nine. Paul tells us some very important things in these verses about the relationship between faith, grace, and works. These are very famous and very, very, very fantastic words by the apostle Paul telling us about our salvation and how it comes about. He says, you are saved by grace through faith not by your works, it's the gift of God so that no one, no one can boast. So three theological concepts here, uh, grace, faith, and works. And what I wanna suggest is that the relationship of these one to the other and the order of them is in fact actually critical to our, to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and to, and to living the Christian life to its fullest. Here's what I want us to see, grace, leads to faith, which leads to good works. Grace is the cause, the cause of our faith, which leads to our good works. Now, now if we get these wrong, if we get these out of order, let me tell you, it will uh, lead you astray. It will lead you into problems and anxieties of different types. It will uh, lead us into missing out on all that God intends uh, for you to have and for you to be. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. Not works first, then grace, then faith. Not grace first, then works, then faith. Not any other order either. There are, there are nine possible combinations and eight of them are mistakes. One and only one of them, Paul would say, would bring all these incredible riches into your life. Every other form or order of the, uh, those three things will in fact infect your life with various distortions and pathologies even. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. Now every preposition is critical here in verse eight. It is by grace that you're saved through faith. 
by grace through faith. Now, theologians will tell you that what Paul is saying there is, is that if you're a Christian today, grace, grace is the material cause of you being a Christian and faith, your faith is the instrumental cause of it. Grace is the material cause and faith is the instrumental cause. Now, when I was in high school, my friends and I used to ride our skateboards everywhere. We were like a pack of hooligans, really, thinking, thinking that we ruled the neighborhood. And we used to do a lot of stupid things. Occasionally, we'd take a piece of rope and tie it to the bumper of one of our cars. And as one of my friends would drive the car, I would be behind the car, holding on to the rope, and we'd see how fast I could get going on my skateboard behind that car, and we'd get going pretty fast. We were not very bright. But what was the cause of that speed? What was causing, what was causing me to move as I was holding on to that rope behind, behind that car? Well, one of the things you could say is that the rope was causing me to move, but that's not exactly true, is it? The rope had no power of its own. The rope was actually only the instrumental cause of my speed. The rope was only transferring the power of the car to me. The actual cause, the material cause of me moving and speeding along was the car. The car was causing me to move, not, not the rope. And in the same way, we must pay close attention to Paul's prepositions here. When he says you were saved by grace and through faith, it's the grace of God, it's the power of God that came first, and that makes you a, that makes you a Christian. And and pulls you along. Your faith is kind of like the rope. It's, it's the way that you receive God's grace and God's power. Now you may say, what does it matter? Why are you telling me this? It's actually more important than you might think. If you're a Christian, I hope what you hear again and again at this church or any church is that you're, you're not saved by being a good person. You're not saved by your uh, good deeds. No, God saves you. He loves you. He accepts you because of your faith in Jesus, right? But here's where we have to be very careful. As you think about those terms over and over again, I'm saved because of my faith, right? I'm, I'm saved by faith, not because of my works. Though that is true, you can very uh, subtly begin to believe that it's the quality of your faith. It's your trust in him, it's your love for him, it's your sense of his presence. That's why God loves you and accepts you. It's, it's because of your faith and how you exercise it. And what can begin to happen without you even realizing it is that you think that your belief, your, your faith is the material cause of your salvation rather than the instrumental cause. You can begin, you can begin to think of your own faith as the car rather than the rope. And here's the very subtle but very uh, real danger in that. Our feelings, they, they come and go, don't they? Our feelings, they wane and uh, waver at times. You may have felt incredibly full and warm and vivid feelings for God when you became a Christian and at certain times since, but feelings come and go, right? They're unpredictable, they're unreliable. Very often, friends, our faith is less about how we feel and more about trusting God in spite of how we feel. And at times you may not be feeling it and you may wonder, uh, where's the faith I used to have? Where's the love, right? Where's, where's the warmth? Where's the passion? And when the subjective quality of your feelings and the strength 
of your feelings of faith toward God aren't where you want them to be or, or where they used to be, some start to wonder, is this for real? Am I really a Christian? Does God really love me? Has he really accepted me? And you need to hear Paul saying here, the answer is yes, because you see what's pulling you along is the car and not the rope. The rope might very well seem frayed and worn and threadbare at times, but but the important thing is whether it's attached. That's all that matters. The rope has no power to save you. God in his grace does that. The rope is just how you receive that power. And so your faith does not awaken God and his grace. God and his grace awakens and sustains you and your faith at every turn, even when you're not feeling it. And that's a, that's a promise he makes. He will sustain you. Nothing can ever break that rope so long as it's attached. And with God and in the gospel, once it's truly attached, it's always attached. Now, interestingly, there are plenty of churches that teach this the other way around, that your faith comes before God's grace. There are plenty of churches that teach if you believe, if you surrender, if you produce the faith, God will then give you grace in response. God pours out his grace and his forgiveness and his love on you in response to the faith that that you generate within yourself. But that's not what Paul says here. Logically, that's false, and biblically, that's false too. Think about this. If you believe your faith comes first and it's all up to you, if your uh, faith comes before God's grace, do you know what you've done? Do you realize what you've done? You've turned your faith into a work. And that's going to lead you down a very slippery slope. You've made yourself the author of your own salvation and the Bible says that's not how it works. And if you think that your faith is the cause of his grace rather than the other way around, friends, how will you ever know it's enough? How will you know when you've believed enough and when you've surrendered enough, when you've committed enough? And the logic that follows from that too is if you stop believing, If you stop surrendering, if the feelings of faith go away, then God's grace goes too. And another thing we need to see, if you think you're responsible for your faith, that your faith is something that you mustered up and because uh, you did those things, God's grace and salvation came into your life, then, then you have reason to boast, don't you? But the passage says it's by grace you've been saved through faith, it's not from yourself. Why? So that no one can boast. But if you believe your faith comes first and that you authored your faith and that your faith is the cause of God's grace, then it would be very hard not to boast. You would look at others who don't believe and wonder why they hadn't uh, figured it all out like you did. They must not be quite as smart as you. They must be uh, a little slow on the uptake. But if you understand If you understand it's grace first and then faith, if you know uh, deeply that God's grace came before your faith and, and awakened your faith apart from anything at all that you did, what can you say to somebody around you who doesn't believe? All you can say is, I get it. There's no fundamental difference between you and me. I also didn't want Christ. I also was far from him, but but he opened my heart and, and he can open yours too. Just like Jesus says in John chapter six, verse 37, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. And so if you turn to him, if you go to him, 
And if you say to him, I don't have any faith, but I want it, I want to believe, I want to know you, often that's all it takes. He'll, he'll give you the faith. Faith is not something you create yourself, it's the gift of God. Ask him for it today if you haven't already. And don't you see how this takes away any possibility of boasting? A great example of this is in Acts chapter 16 where Paul says that uh, the Lord, says the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she could understand what Paul was telling her about Jesus. The Lord opened Lydia's heart to, to respond to Paul's message. And so who responded? Lydia responded. Faith is not, it's not a passive thing, it's an active thing. You don't sit back, you do something. But after you've done it, you realize, you come to realize that you were, you were enabled to do it. The Lord opened her heart. God's grace caused her faith. It, it awakened her faith. And when grace awakens faith, what we'll, what we'll see as we finish up here, looking at verse 10, is it leads to good works. Grace, then faith, then works. We, we saw what we were by nature and what we've become by grace. Let's look for a moment at what we're, what we're becoming for his glory. And I wish I had more time to develop this, but I need to be brief. But uh, verse 10 says that you and I, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, in, prepared ahead of time for us to do. We talked about what we were saved from, sin and Satan and death, and what we are saved to, right, being raised and seated with Jesus. And verse 10 gives us a glimpse of what we're saved for in the, in the present tense. We are God's workmanship created for good works. And here's, one, here's the main thing I want you to see in this verse. The word translated there as workmanship, it's the Greek word poema, from which we get our word poem or poetry. Some translations say masterpiece there. You are God's masterpiece, like a work of art. This is very compelling language here. When God's grace awakens your faith and you become a follower of Jesus, you and your life become like a poem, like a story being told as an expression of the inner vision of the poet himself as you follow him in faith. Friends, as a follower of Jesus, you and your life are like, like a work of art, a work of art in progress to be sure, but a work of art Nevertheless, the Lord's work, the Lord's masterpiece being carefully and created, created and crafted by him as you follow him in faith. Paul is saying that God in a very continuous sense is making you into who he intends for you to be, putting his finishing touches on the work that he's doing in your heart and in your life. In Philippians chapter one, verse six, Paul says to the Philippians, I'm sure of this, that, that God who began, who, had, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. God will, God will bring you and your faith and your salvation to completion and you get to participate in the story with him, living, living a new life under a new power for a new purpose, loving and 
serving others, enjoying the good works he prepared for you beforehand for his glory and for your joy. I hope you're doing that. I hope you're uh, participating with him because from start to finish, from beginning to end, the, the author and creator of all things is telling a story through you. A unique poem is unfolding in your life and through your life and as your life as the author and poet brings to completion that which he started in you by his grace. So let's be swept up in in the story together. Let's pray.